Today we're uh, continuing uh, the sermon series, um, Changing Direction, and we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. Today is also Family Sunday, so we want to welcome all of our first through fifth graders that are joining us this morning. They've been given worksheets with questions that are connected to today's sermon, such as listening for what animals are mentioned in the book of Jonah. And if they fill out their sheet well, they get candy at the end. That's a good incentive. I'm going to give you all one freebie, but I want to cut. Um, so, you know, when you go get your candy, just come back to me. But here's your freebie. The name Jonah means dove. Every time you read the word dove in the Bible, it's Jonah, Yonah. You can circle that on your worksheet and don't forget me when you collect your candy. I know a lot of y'all are familiar with the story of Jonah, but I'm not going to assume that everyone knows it. And it's quite possible that somebody's hearing it for the first time today. Before we go any further, I want to warn you, if you are assuming that the change of direction is going to come in Jonah's life, then you need to look elsewhere. Jonah doesn't have much of a character arc. And one more thing, and then maybe this is a bit of a spoiler, but the book really isn't about Jonah. It's the book of Jonah, but the title is misleading. Make us think that Jonah is the protagonist or the hero of this story. Actually, he's more of a sidekick than a leading man. Kids, here's your second freebie. God is the main character of the story. God is the main character in the book of Jonah. Anyone in here familiar with the Kurt Russell movie, Big Trouble in Little China? Do we have any fans? I'm a big fan of Big Trouble in Little China. One of my favorites, cult classic from the mid-80s. Stop whatever plans you had this afternoon, go home and watch it. You may or may not thank me. Um, but Kurt Russell plays a truck driver named Jack, Jack Burton. And this is an action movie. It's, you know, everything about the 80s is contained in this movie. Big action movie, but throughout the story, Kurt Russell's character, Jack Burton, thinks that he is the hero of the story, when in actuality, he's kind of a bumbling sidekick. He gets knocked out at the beginning of the most of the fights and just wakes up when they're over. Um, Jonah is kind of like that. He's the sidekick. Don't get confused. It's called the book of Jonah, but God is the main character. Tanahasi Coates, in his commentary on this book, has this to say. Jonah is a strange prophet, and the book of Jonah is a strange book. Even the writing makes for a strange document. And in the end, we are left with more questions than answers. And you'll see that that's true as we finish today. So with that for an introduction, let's jump in. Jonah 1.1. 1, 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. All we are told about Jonah is that his dad's name was Amittai. Now certainly we're going to learn a lot more about Jonah from his actions. And he's also mentioned two other times in the Bible, once in the Old Testament and once in the New. So let's quickly look at those, see if we can get a little more information about who Jonah is. In 2 Kings 14, Jonah is mentioned as being a prophet or an advisor to King Jeroboam II, who just happened to be one of the most wicked kings 
in the history of Israel. So what do we learn from this? Just that Jonah had the king's ear. He had access to the king. He was in the king's court when he gets this call from God to go to another land. Now on to the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the New Testament. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus himself refers to Jonah when the religious leaders come to him asking for a sign. So Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus refers to Jonah as a prophet, and he compares his coming death and resurrection to Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. And Jesus kind of spoils the ending of today's story. For those of you who don't know it, the Ninevites repent because of Jonah's preaching. And lastly, we learn, if it puts up on the screen, Jonah was a real person. Um, sometimes it's debated whether the story of Jonah is a fable or is it history. But when we read Jesus' words, it sounds like he's talking about a real person, doesn't it? Um, and he compares his upcoming death and resurrection to Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish. I don't think Jesus would compare what he was about to do to a fable or a story. So I'm going with Jonah was a real dude. What can we say about the city of Nineveh? What do we know about the city and its inhabitants? Nineveh was a large Assyrian city, possibly the largest city in the world at that time. It was a center of pagan worship for numerous gods. It was large and important. And Assyria was the enemy of Jonah's people, of his nation, Israel. The Assyrians were famous for their cruelty. Not only did they conquer other nations, they were known as torturers. They were actually innovators when it came to torture. You heard crucifixion? Rome borrowed that from the Assyrians. Deanna Peacock, our children's minister, shared something with me this week that I wanted to share with you, something about, that she had read about the book of Jonah. And this is speculation. This is not in the Bible, but it's speculation. Uh, but looking at the time period that Jonah was alive and the location of Jonah's hometown, it's very possible that Jonah had had firsthand experience of the cruelty of the Assyrians, may have lost loved ones to the Assyrians. That's just something to keep in mind as we move forward and trying to understand Jonah as a person. And now Jonah, a prophet from Israel, an advisor to the king, hears God's call to go and preach against the city and inhabitants of Nineveh, Israel's enemies. Let's see how Jonah responds. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Not only is Jonah the only prophet sent by God to preach repentance in a foreign land, he is also the only prophet to refuse and reject 
God's call. Instead of taking the overland route that would have taken them north and east to Nineveh, Jonah goes south and west to Joppa, and then he hops on a ship. He's not only putting distance between himself and Nineveh, he's putting the sea, an obstacle, between them. What does God do in response? God sends a violent storm that threatens to tear the ship apart. The sailors are doing everything in their power to save the ship and their own lives. They are throwing off unnecessary weight and they're praying to their gods, but nothing is, worse, is working. I'm a cat person. Are there any cat people here? I'm guessing there's probably more dog people. I like cats. I think they're more interesting. Um, just for instance, if you go home today to find that your dog has grown to the size of a horse, he will still obey you. If, on the other hand, you come home and your cat has grown to the size of a horse, he's probably going to try and kill you. Cats are interesting. Cats are also great when you're home alone. Have you ever been, uh, you know, late at night, maybe reading a book or watching something, it's dark, and uh, you hear a noise at the other end of your house and the, you know, the, where all the lights are off, and you get a little creeped out and wondering if, you know, somebody's breaking into your house or, you know, if something's happening. If you have a cat, you know how to respond. Because if the cat is on the couch with you asleep and pays no attention to that noise, doesn't move, doesn't look up, doesn't do anything, what do you know? It's nothing. If the cat's cool, you can, you can relax. But if the cat looks up and is staring down that dark hallway, you know you have trouble, right? Cats are great. What does this have to do with today's story? Sailors are like cats. You know, all these stories we read in the Bible of, you know, when Jesus was on the boat and, you know, a storm comes up and everybody's panicking. When you're on a ship with sailors and maybe there's a huge storm happening, if the sailors are calm and doing their jobs but um, not panicking, you know that you don't have to panic, right? Because these are seasoned sailors. They know what they're supposed to do. They've been in storms before. And if they're not panicking, there's nothing to worry about. When sailors panic, what do we need to do? Panic, because they know that this is out of their control and out of their abilities. Sailors are like cats. So the sailors in today's stories are panicking, desperate to save the ship. Where is Jonah? What is he doing? He's in the bottom of the ship, asleep. Somehow, through all the noise, storms, and chaos, he is able to sleep. Jonah has real reason to worry, but um, he's somehow sleeping. We're going to find out why. Jonah has a bit of a death wish. The captain of the ship runs into the bottom of the ship, wakes him up, and tells him to pray to his God to save them. Maybe your God will hear our prayers and do something. Finally, the sailors cast lots. They draw straws to figure out who is to blame for their dire straits, and Jonah draws the short straw. They want to know who Jonah is and what he has done. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And then he tells them to throw him overboard if they want to save themselves and their ship. There's that death wish. But these pagan sailors don't want to do it. They don't want to throw Jonah overboard. Instead, they start rowing even harder, working even harder to try and get back to land, to save the ship, to save themselves, to save Jonah. 
But the waves and the winds increase, and so finally they decide, yeah, we've got to throw Jonah overboard. They throw, but before they throw him overboard, they pray to Jonah's God, our God, to forgive them for doing this. They throw him overboard, and immediately the waves calm, the winds calm. And then what do the sailors do next? They offer sacrifices to Jonah's God. And you're going to see this reoccurring in today's story. Jonah acting poorly while the pagans genuinely try to do the right thing. There's a lot of stuff upside down in the book of Jonah. And as Jonah sinks into the depths of the sea, God sends a big fish that swallows him whole. And for three days and three nights, Jonah is in the belly of the fish. What did Jonah do while he was in that fish? Anybody know? He prayed. I heard somebody say it. He prayed. Chapter 2 of Jonah is a prayer. And this is the moment in the story, right, where Jonah repents. This is where he turns. In the belly of the fish, Jonah has a come-to-Jesus moment and sees the error of his ways. He asks God for forgiveness and changes direction. That's what happens, right? Not so much. I'll summarize his prayer. As the waves surrounded me and I began to sink, I cried out and you heard me. From this point forward, I will obey you. And he ends with this, salvation comes from the Lord. I warned you at the beginning, didn't I? The change of direction doesn't come in Jonah's life. Jonah doesn't have much of a character arc. Jonah has now moved from, I won't do it, and you can't make me, to fine, I'll do it, but I'm not going to like it. We had that conversation about cleaning up a room, asking a kid, clean up the room. So now, strap in and get ready to watch Jonah do the bare minimum. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Raise your hand if you think God has a sense of humor. This is great. And, you know, in the Bible, there is the sentence, the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. No fluff, no context, no mention of God or Nineveh's sin or the opportunity to repent. Jonah leaves out God's desire for their repentance. You know, think about it for a moment. If God just wanted to destroy Nineveh, he didn't need Jonah, did he? Jonah was sent to save them, not to condemn them. But Jonah turns God's warning into a judgment that seems inevitable, irrevocable, immutable, and set in stone. You get the feeling that Jonah doesn't want to give them the opportunity to repent. We alluded to the possibility that he may have had firsthand knowledge having lost relatives to the Assyrians, but he certainly doesn't want to give them repentance as an option. What else does he omit from his message? Is there anything else he might have shared with them that might cause them to repent? How about the miraculous story 
of God's great love for them. For God so loved the Ninevites that he sent his son Jonah to call them to repentance. And when Jonah ran the other way, God so loved the Ninevites that he sent a storm and a fish to get Jonah headed back in the right direction. Jonah had this amazing story to tell the Ninevites that perfectly illustrated the depths of God's love for them and the lengths that God was willing to go in order to call them to repentance in a right relationship with him. But Jonah didn't share any of that with them. Remember, he's doing the bare minimum. Remember what he prayed, I'll obey you? He's obeying God, but his will is still at odds with God's will. Before we move on, I want to point out something else in Jonah's message. Jonah says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The number 40, kids, you listening? The number 40 is significant in the Bible. Christy McClelland, a professor at Williamson College, says that the number 40 always precedes big change. So when you're reading the Bible and you come across phrases like, in 40 days or 40 years, get ready because change is a coming. So how do the Ninevites respond? Jonah 3, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. The Ninevites believed God. Despite Jonah's best efforts to sabotage his mission, I just want, I don't know if we have Beastie Boy fans, I want to say, listen all y'all, it's a sabotage. Every time I hear that word, that's the first phrase that comes in my head. But God spoke through Jonah, and just like Joey on Full House, he said, cut it out. You know what I'm talking about? Cut it out. The Ninevites didn't respond, cut it out. Cut what out? What are you talking about? They didn't need clarification. They knew what God was talking about. They knew the it that God was talking about. They heard the message loud and clear. And they received it and turned. They changed direction. The entire city repented, even the king. They put on sackcloth and fasted. Even the cows and other animals were made to fast and put on sackcloth. Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. That was God's plan all along. He sent Jonah to save them, not to condemn them, in the same way that God sent Jesus not to condemn us, but to save us. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If only that were the end of the story, but it's not. The Ninevites have turned, they've changed direction, they've repented, but what about Jonah? Where is he and what is he doing? Perhaps he's celebrating with the Ninevites. Nope. Or maybe he's leading them in worship of God, who is full of love and mercy, grace and compassion. Nope. Or maybe he has sat down in the town square or in, even in the king's chambers 
to teach them about the one true God. Nope. Like Elvis, Jonah has left the building. Like Snagglepuss, he has exited stage left. But he has not gone too far. Once again, we find Jonah acting poorly while the pagans are genuinely trying to do the right thing. Jonah 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Remember there was something a little off about Jonah's first prayer in chapter 2, that it lacked repentance? And why? Because Jonah wasn't repentant about running away and ignoring God's call. And now he's praying again, and he's praying angry, seemingly through clenched teeth with a lot of finger pointing. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is practically quoting God, speaking to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. How do you pray these words angry? He's so angry with God that he asked God to strike him dead. Jonah is just stewing in his anger. He goes outside the city walls, sits down to watch what is going to happen to the city. What is he watching and waiting for? Maybe he thinks their repentance isn't authentic, and he's hoping to throw an I told you so in God's face when they revert back to their old, cruel, and wicked ways. While he sits, watches, and waits, God causes a vine to grow up over him to provide shade from the hot sun. And so now we're about to see some character development in Jonah. Are you all ready? Get comfortable, get ready. This is going to be big. God causes this vine to grow over Jonah to shade him from the sun. The Bible says that Jonah was very happy. So there is the big character arc for Jonah. And that's about all you're going to get because we're going right back to angry Jonah because the next day God sent a worm that chews the vine and causes it to wither and die. The heat of the sun on Jonah's head nearly causes him to faint. And for the third time, Jonah thinks that it would be better for him to die than to live. First time was on the ship when he asked the sailors to throw him overboard, and the second time was during his angry prayer. Let's read the final verses of the book of Jonah. Jonah 4, verse 9. But God said to Noah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? 
Two times in this chapter, God asked Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? And the book ends with this question from God to Noah. Should I not be concerned about the inhabitants of Nineveh who live in spiritual darkness? Jonah's answer is not recorded. The book ends with the question just dangling. I think Jonah knew the answer. He just didn't want to say it. And really, he had already answered the question, and it was painful the first time he had to answer it. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So now we are left with a big question. Kids, are you listening? There's another thing to fill out, fill in the blank on your sheet. The big question we're left with at the end of Jonah is this. Are you okay with God loving your enemies? Are you okay with God loving your enemies? Jonah wasn't. Jonah didn't want his enemies, the Assyrians, to have the same opportunity for repentance that he and the nation of Israel had access to. He wanted God to smite and punish his enemies. And as much as he hated the Assyrians, and as horrible as they were, Jonah knew that all their evil ways were only exceeded by God's love and compassion. He knew that if they repented, God would have compassion on them. Romans 5.10 says that we were all once enemies of God. We were all once enemies of God. Are we thankful that God loves his enemies? Us? Of course we are. But are we okay with God loving our enemies? When I say enemies, who do you think of? You don't have to shout it out. I don't know if something pops into your head. Um, as y'all, many of y'all know, I was a missionary in Ukraine for 20 years. So guess what word popped in my head when I read this? And what, I'm putting Russians in that. What, what am I thinking? Russians, thank you very much. Yep. Am I okay with God loving the Russians? And then we have the question that Sting asked. Do the Russians love their children too? I am thankful for the mercy that I have received from God. Should I not also be thankful when others, even my enemies, receive that same grace? Amen.